Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December the 16th, 2021. And this is episode 3003 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Thursday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A. I got a great panel of folks for you. I will tell you, this will be the last Expert Council show on the Survival Podcast for 2021. We will not have an Expert Council show next week. I'm giving the council off. I'll probably on that Wednesday be running the Christmas special. I think I'm going to have Kingsley Edwards on Tuesday. Uh, I was supposed to have him on yesterday and didn't from Float. I got a whole different round of stuff to talk about on Float with Kingsley. I made sure I limited some of the things we talked about yesterday with uh, Alex and Alexander so that I could save that for Kingsley. Uh, and I don't know what we'll be doing Monday. We'll be doing a Out Back with Jack tomorrow. I check the temperature. It, it, it's not going to be too cold. As long as the winds don't go crazy around here again, we'll have Out Back with Jack actually out back tomorrow. Uh, and, and again, uh, we'll just have a short week next week, and we will go into the winter shutdown. I'll have more thoughts on that tomorrow for you about why maybe you should implement your own if there's any way that you can. It's a tradition in my life that goes way, way back. I'll tell you more about it tomorrow. Anyway, what do we have for you guys today? Well, I got the Ron Paul Liberty highlights from Dr. Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. Uh, Dr. Paul will talk to us about the absurdity of the concept of a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I'll throw a little dog pile on that one after that segment. Uh, in that same segment, Dan McAdams over there with Dr. Paul will talk about the massive number of healthcare workers refusing the vaccine and what that really tells us. And Chris Rossini will uh, anchor that segment with, why now is a tremendous opportunity for champions of liberty? And I completely agree. I think that the, the, the pandemic, scandemic, call it whatever you want to, the COVID scandemic has done more for liberty than anything in my adult life. It doesn't look that way, but Chris will talk about why it is the case. John Pugliano will talk to you about I-bonds and what use that has for investors right now. Sean Mills will talk about uh, battery technology updates. In, it's like an industry-wide thing. Some things that are going on is really, really interesting. And why it's getting more and more affordable to go off-grid or partially off-grid. Because the, the cost of solar has dropped exponentially over the years. And I think people are aware of that. What is the more expensive component now is the storage aspect. And that's getting more efficient and more affordable as well. Chef Keith Snow will talk to us about using dried chili peppers. I'll throw a little on top of that one. Tim, the Toolman Cook, will talk about using a saw guide that are really designed to be used with a circular saw with a reciprocating saw. And I'm going to do something I usually don't do. I'm going to tell somebody answering, asking the question, the question itself is not bad, but the reason you're asking the question is because you're wrong. Not really. Well, yeah, sort of. You'll, you'll see when we get there. Um, Derek Bon Pietro will handle a pair of generator questions. And I'm going to talk to you about how modern censorship and book burning really are the same thing. And when we do, we'll hit our quote of the day today. This is by Heinrich Hein. It was written in 1823. 
where they have burned books, they will end in burning human beings. And in 1933, the book that was written in was burned in the Nazi book burnings. Very, very, uh, very, very telling there. And I'm going to tell you why I think that censorship by big tech today is modern book burning and why I actually think it's worse. It's worse in some ways. But fortunately, we have ways to fight back today that are far more powerful than the ways there were to fight back in the 1930s or any time where humans have seen fit to burn the creative works of others because those ideas are, quote, dangerous. I'm going to tell you something that you might be surprised about. Yeah, those ideas are dangerous. Well, dangerous to the people in power if they challenge the ideas that keep those people in power. They are dangerous. Not the way they mean it. They are dangerous. And that is why we need to make sure we don't allow them to be shut down. Because what's dangerous for the enemy is good for the, for the, for, for, you know, your side. Right? And that's what it is. They're afraid of data. They're afraid of knowledge. They're afraid of debate. Anyway, I'll save it for later. And I will be live streaming just my segment today. Obviously, I can't live stream the whole expert counsel show, but I am going to work on putting together maybe some expert, expert counsel, counsel panel shows that will be live in the future going into 2022. With that, let's uh, dive on into it and lead off, as we always do, with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. Walensky, in October, admitted that uh, the vaccine does not prevent the transmission. Yeah. At the same time, all the blame goes on the unvaccinated, and it turns out statistically it isn't true. Yeah. You'd think that would be case closed. Yeah. No more you know, mandates. Let's have a trial. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> let's have a, a trial. trial. See, uh, you know, that's right. I, I imagine if you found some people who just uh, not in, know about this in detail, but have a little bit of common sense, present the evidence, I think uh, the trial will uh, show you that the common sense would win and say this. This just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And yet they go on. It doesn't even. It doesn't even phase them. That's what's uh, I, I think is unbelievable. You think they'd try to avoid it or or. Or, or push it aside or say, well, things have changed or something. But they just march on uh, repeating these uh, uh, nonsense about uh, why it's always the fault of the unvaccinated. No matter where are they getting these statistics? Yeah. From the CDC, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, from the CDC, yeah. They get statistics there to show, uh, you know, that it, it isn't the unvaccinated. And now it's just beginning about the uh, not only the failure of the vaccinations to do much good, the danger of what's happening to the people who have taken taken these uh, shots and this, especially the additional shots, so the booster shots. So it's, uh, it is there. It's still complex. It is not, it's, it's complex politically because the people in charge and the major news media are still spouting this off. But I think it's changing and, and the courts have been helpful to us and all of a sudden we're going to see an explosion uh, of uh, common sense and desire to get them off our backs, you know. Yeah. I, I think I think that's uh, has begun and that's helped it along a little bit. It's really interesting, and this is an article we saw on Zero Hedge, the main article, but uh, they're talking about a massive exodus of healthcare workers away from hospitals that are demanding that you take the shot, and two hospitals that are giving some freedom. They quote. Employment attorney Wayne Simmons, uh, he's the head of Mercer's U U.S. regulatory practice, quote, 
if you get certain healthcare facilities that don't require it, those could be a magnet for those people who don't want the vaccine. They're probably having an easier time attracting labor. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing that struck me, though, Dr. Paul, in this article. And this is a quote. Most recently, thousands of nurses have left the industry or lost their jobs rather than get vaccinated. As of September 30th, as of September, 30% of workers at more than 2,000 hospitals across the country surveyed by the Centers for Disease Control were unvaccinated. 30%. Now, this is a strange thing if you think about it, because these healthcare workers have been in the trenches of COVID for two years, fighting the tre- in the trenches. Why is it that it's among the most unvaccinated? You'd think that they would be running, <laughs> yeah. running for the vaccine. Why are so many of them so adamant about not taking it? Now is a very big opportune time to spread the message of liberty uh, because people are uncomfortable. You know, we're, we're used to in America living comfortable lives. You know, we're well entertained, well fed. But, uh, you know, a lot of it was an illusion and the illusion is falling apart. And if you watch our show each day, you can maybe get a big picture overview. Things are not going well for the people in power. Um, you know, and we've covered on Friday the financial aspect of it. They're, they're cornered and they're looking for ways to just keep the illusion going. But it's when people are in pain that they start to search for answers that they probably would not have before. And they may not like hearing the truth because nobody likes to admit that they were wrong, that they were lied to, that they were duped. That's very hard for everyone to admit, even us. But they're more likely now with government in their face, trying to take away their jobs, trying to force them to do things that they don't want, to have an ear for the ideas of liberty. And our ideas are not centralized. You can't say, ah, let Ron Paul do it. Let Rand Paul take care of it. Well, this is how Ron Paul handles it. He tells you. And then we expect for others to do their job wherever they are, in Texas, in Idaho, in Oklahoma, or in, you know, this show is watched by people around the world, wherever you are. It's decentralized. Tell the people about free markets, sound money, voluntary interactions, no uh, government interference in every single aspect of our lives. And when we all do that, you know, good things will happen. You know, all three of those are very um, interesting points. Starting out with Dr. Paul, I think that this is actually one that ties in in a way to Chris Rossini's anchor segment there. And this idea of the pandemic of the unvaccinated. They're, they're cooking the books on that terminology because they keep changing the definition of what vaccinated means. So originally vaccinated means uh, you had your first shot, then you had your second shot, and then a certain amount of time since the second shot had passed – so plenty of people were having breakthrough cases they weren't calling breakthrough cases, which we should stop even using the term breakthrough cases, which is you get the vaccine, you can still get COVID, and you're just as likely to get it as anybody else. There may be, maybe for some people, some level of protection once they get it as to not getting as severe, maybe. All right, And there's a lot of other risks that go along with that. That would be best case scenario. So it's nonsense about preventing spread. It does absolutely nothing to prevent spread. And But this is where I think it ties into what Chris was saying about people waking up. There's a, there's a contingent of people right now that are still asleep, but they're about to get woken up. I have one of my family that said something to the effect recently of, well, 
If you don't want the vaccine, then accept the consequences. Now, this person lives in Texas where they literally have no consequences for it whatsoever unless they want to travel internationally or goes to some other shitty state like New York or California. So they're completely unaware of something. They're not vaccinated. By the definition of vaccinated, they're not vaccinated. Uh, this one person received one injection of the J&J vaccine almost a year ago now. You're not vaccinated. And it's going to be interesting when these people who think, well, I've complied. I've complied. So I'm going to be able to go out and live my life. And other people can just be screwed. because. And what they say is they always say the same thing. Well, I had it and I'm fine. Well, I had it, and I'm fine. Well, first of all, you don't know that. You don't know what the long-term effects to your immune system are. But let's just say that you are. That is so self-centered. This is supposed to be the selfless thing to do. Hold on now. So what you're saying is that you're fine, that's fine. But somebody's kid who got severe myocarditis, who severely reduced their life expectancy from that event, screw them. That's what you're saying. But I think the real wake-up, the real, hey, government's still in your face, is going to be, oh, Oh, I see, because you live in a place where nobody actually asked for any of this shit. You thought you were vaccinated. You're not. You're not vaccinated. You're not fully vaccinated. In fact, you're no longer vaccinated at all. In fact, Fauci himself just came out and said, it's, it's only a matter of time until the definition changes again. Okay, yeah, there you go. So I think that's going to be interesting. Um, on Dan McAdams, I actually think the number of healthcare workers who refuse, is even disproportionate in understanding how big a deal it is. They are not only the people that you would think if it worked and if it was safe would be first in line to get it. They were given priority to get it and chose not to. And they have been under more pressure in more places than any other demographic, employment-wise, in the country to do it. Because even the ones that live in... I'd say the only other place that this is less true is the military, right? Like, other than the military, if you live in a state that is completely free of mandates, like Florida or Texas, you still are dealing with employer mandates universally in the healthcare sector. So they're the most pressured and the closest to the issue with the greatest risk of exposure, and they're the ones most saying no. All of that is really, really interesting. And again, I just want to say how fortunate we are to have uh, Ron Paul and his team as part of our crew over here at TSP on a weekly segment basis. Uh, next, Jeff, John Pugliano, we're going to go in a totally different direction. We're going to talk about something called I-bonds. What the heck's an I-bond? Why would you want one? Do you? We'll find all of that out right now from Mr. Pugliano. Hello, TSP. We have a financial question from Derek, and he's asking, what do I think about I-bonds as a place to park money? Well, Derek and a lot of people are interested in I-bonds lately because recently the interest rate on those has jumped up to over an annualized rate of 7%, of over 7%. So that's a really big deal, especially when you're talking about government-backed U.S. Treasuries. The reason these rates are so high recently is because the I-bond is specifically indexed to inflation, and it's adjusted every six months. And I think if you're just parking money somewhere and you're trying to keep up with inflation, then the I-bonds are a good option, but they do come with some limitations. And so to briefly review what those caveats are, that's number one, you have to keep the money there for one year. Now These are payable for out to 30 years, but you can't redeem it for at least the first 12 months. And then even after that, if you redeem it before a full five years, then you'll lose the most recent three months of interest. 
So if you totally want to get all the benefits, you have to hold it for at least five years. The other thing to consider is that there are limitations on how many of these you can purchase. Per individual, it's $10,000 a year. Although you can increase that and stretch it out to about another $5,000 per individual. And you can do that by taking your annual tax refund and using it to purchase the I-bond instead of doing it with direct cash. The other thing that you have to remember, and to me this is the biggest concern, is that this is a variable rate. And the rate is made up of a composite of two separate individual rates. Now, one of those is a fixed rate that you'll receive for up to the entire 30 year of the bond. And then the other rate is based purely on inflation. And it's not a simple addition of the two rates to come up with a composite rate. There's a formula. It's not very complicated. It's the fixed rate plus two times the semi-annual inflation rate plus the fixed rate times the semi-annual inflation rate. The bottom line is, is that right now, the fixed rate is paying zero. So they're guaranteeing you absolutely nothing for the next 30 years. That means that the only rate that you're going to receive is going to be based on the inflation rate. And the problem I would have with that is that, yeah, right now inflation's really high, running above 7%. But remember, they recalibrate this every six months. And at some point in the future, I don't know how far out that will be, but at some point in the future, the Federal Reserve is going to claim that they've tackled the inflation problem. And since their target goal is somewhere around 2%, and I think you can assume that the long-term rates on these I-bonds is going to be somewhere around that, you know, 2, 2.5%, especially once we get through all the post-COVID reopening issues and supply chain issues and shortages. I think that's a really likely scenario, and if you take the most recent inflation that we've had because of the COVID reopenings out of the equation, and you look back over the last decade, the I-bond interest rate, as I calculate it, has only averaged about 1.95% annual rate. So factor that into your consideration. Overall, though, if you're just going to park money, you're probably going to get a better rate than in your local savings account. But keep in mind, the money is not as liquid. There are restrictions around it. And since the fixed rate is zero, all the interest is going to be based on inflation. And theoretically, that means that there could be periods when it actually pays zero interest. That occurred for a six-month period in 2015. It could potentially be repeated again. The real thing to keep in mind, though, is that the money is fully backed up by the U.S. Treasury. So while the interest rate may be in question... The principle is guaranteed. Hey, the bottom line is, it all depends on what your risk tolerance is and how much money you want to keep parked into cash. Personally, unless I think we're headed for a recession, I keep just enough money in my checking account to cover my normal month-to-month cash flow expenses, and then all the rest of my money is invested in appreciating assets, and for me that means mostly the stock market, because I think that that's the best way for my money not only to keep up with inflation, but to grow significantly. Again, though, it all depends on what your risk tolerance is and how long your investment horizon is. So, Derek, thanks for the question, and congratulations to Jack for doing over 3,000 episodes. I appreciate the opportunity he's given me to be on the Expert Council, and I wish everybody a Merry Christmas, and we'll see you in the new year. Until then, this is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast.
So I'll just say that right now, if you want to hold dollars for whatever reason, you're in between trades, you have money you want to remain more liquid uh, without being subject to volatility and what have you, there's an option that um, doesn't get discussed a lot. And, and I personally think it's a hell of a lot better than this option. There's various different uh, crypto exchanges, DEX, et cetera. Uh, DEXs, I'm saying DEX, Decentralized Exchanges, et cetera, DeFi, et cetera, where you can hold stablecoin, USDC, TUSD, et cetera. Basically, you're holding, think of it as a synthetic dollar, which I think pretty much most of the dollars are synthetic, but you kind of get what I'm saying there, right? And you can earn very good interest rates on them, certainly comparable to this optimized yield off of an I-bond. And in most instances, you're not tying the, the funds up for very long. In some instances, you're really not tying it up for any real duration. And so there's no penalty for saying, okay, I'm good now. I want to go do something else with this. And then it's sitting there in a stable coin where you have the option, where you have this reserve capital, because maybe you're waiting to buy dips in stocks or equities, you can move that out through a bank account back into your brokerage, or it's sitting right there where, oh, gee, look, Bitcoin just took a 25% bath that I believe is short-term, and I want I want to be able to capitalize on that buy. So you have the flexibility, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to recommend programs or anything, because this is not something I'm doing. It's something that I'm starting to look into, And I, when I find what I'm looking for, I'll say, hey, this program has the Spirico seal of approval on it right now. But this is one of those things that's like you can't do everything. I've been much more on the crypto side, a holder on the equity side. I have an investment manager. You do with that with you will as far as who you think that would be. And then I kind of just go along with that plan. And, you know, we have cash, but if, if you have cash and you want to earn a return on it and you want to keep it liquid right now, and I think this is why the Fed is getting so interested in clamping down on stable coins and trying to drag them into the FDIC world, they don't care about you. They're not worried about your safety and security. Because they're operating in this other world, they're able to pay something called a reasonable interest rate. Right? They're able to pay a reasonable interest rate because they're not in this incestuous game of grab ass where they have unlimited borrowing and they can just borrow at next to nothing and lend it back to the government and earn a couple points spread and then suppress interest rates across the board and tell you, screw you, we're going to give you like 0.3% on your savings account because they don't need your money. Right? Well, these, these alternative institutions For them to function, they need people to be willing to hold funding with them, so they have to pay a reasonable rate of return. Just a thought, just an addition, just another option uh, for you. Next up, let's hear from Sean Mills on an update about battery technology as a, as a whole, kind of in the industry. Hey guys, this is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and I uh, got a little bit of an update on battery technology uh, for you today. So I've been getting a lot of questions from people about how Tesla and Ford switching to lithium iron phosphate batteries for shorter range vehicles might impact the availability of home scale battery storage, particularly since I've been telling people for about the past year, if you can afford it on the front end, lithium iron phosphate's the way to go. Well, what is happening is that China has gotten really good at manufacturing lithium iron phosphate cells, and the cost of those are down about 97% per kilowatt hour of storage since they were first introduced about 30 years ago. 
Um, one other thing is that the patent on these batteries actually runs out next year. So right now, legally, they're only allowed to be made in China. Uh, after next year, they can made, be made anywhere. Um, the issue that we have with electronic vehicles is that with all these competitors trying to get cars and trucks to the market uh, to either create a sort of brand loyalty or to cash in on their existing brand loyalty, see the F-150 Lightning, um, they are running into supply chain issues with batteries specifically. There are gigafactories popping up all over the world to meet the new demand, but those factories have not sourced all of their supply chain partners. And the pandemic has both accelerated the electronic vehicle timeline as well as impacted the supply chains from the mines out. Um, currently, your electric vehicles are running on lithium nickel cobalt technologies, which are more energy dense, but they have other problems. Uh, cobalt is a problem in that most of the world's reserves are in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, I found that countries with Democratic Republic of in their name are typically not. Uh, North Korea, Congo, and Laos being some examples. Uh, there are lots of accusations of inhumane treatment of minors and exploitation of child workers. Uh, cobalt is actually referred to by some as the blood diamond of batteries. Now Tesla, as the EV leader, has already identified these issues and they stated last year uh, that they would be moving away from cobalt in their batteries. This, of course, created a greater demand for nickel. So Elon Musk has been asking mining companies to create more nickel. Um, the United States Department of Energy actually identified the need earlier this year to have a national strategy for reshoring lithium-ion battery production. Um, a switch to the lithium-iron phosphate batteries away from the lithium-nickel-cobalt eliminates the cobalt and the nickel in favor of iron, which is obviously easy to get in the United States, and phosphoric acid, which we produce a ton of here. Um, these are both items that are easy to get. The supply chains already exist. There's nothing new that has to be done. Uh, so at the end of the day, lithium is really the only component that they need to be able to source. Lithium definitely is not as widely available in the U.S. as it is in China and Australia. Uh, but, you know, the more demand there is, the more that's going to be found. It's currently estimated that the U.S. has about 8 million tons of lithium resources, although only about 10% of that is considered to be economically extractable using current technology and prices. Well, what happens with these, um, you know, metals is the same thing that happens with oil. When it is more expensive, there are more economically uh, viable technologies and as those technologies get better it drives the price back down because the cost of production goes down so you're going to see the same thing with lithium as you've seen over the past hundred years with oil production um, so with all that being said I think that at least for the next few years you're going to continue to see the price of these batteries come down um, Obviously, there's some supply chain issues that we've been dealing with this year, specifically for uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries that are meant for off-grid or uh, backup systems in the home. Now, once these gigafactories get up and running um, and then potentially retool to make lithium iron phosphate batteries domestically, again, they're all set up for the nic nickel cobalt technology right now. Um, at that point, you might start to see some, pr some protectionist tariffs that will cause the prices to go up. 
or you could see tax incentives and grants provided to these companies to actually reduce the cost of the consumer. Um, you know, a lot of that depends on which party is in the White House. Uh, if you've got um, a Republican there, they're probably going to go to the side of tariffs, which is essentially is just an additional tax for you and I. Um, and if you have a Democrat in the White House and, and controlling the Congress, um, you'll probably see tax incentives and grants, which um, are kind of the same thing. It's just subsidized over a much larger portion of the population. Um, so the end user um, doesn't actually end up paying the full cost of those items. So I could see it going either way. Um, but I think at least for the next couple of years, um, you're going to continue to see the price of these batteries come down. Um, I do still think that whatever version of the Build Back Better plan gets passed is going to have that 30% tax incentive uh, for both solar, solar thermal, and wind uh, installations. Uh, it's at 26% now and next year, and I believe the year after that, uh, based on current law. So, you know, that extra 4% isn't a reason to run out and um, either get stuff right away or to you know, put put aside a project that you're already ready to move forward with. Um, as any of these, uh, you know, thought processes or, or um, items change uh, as they continue to develop and as some of this technology begins to change, I will continue to follow it and I will share my thoughts with the community. Well, thanks everyone. Have a happy holiday season and we'll talk to you later. You know, and it is kind of the missing link and I, I, I am not like an Elon Musk fanboy, but I am an observer of what's going on. And I, I think it always bears repeating when we get into this discussion what Tesla is. What is Tesla as a company? And if you ask people that, people, of course, say Tesla is a car company. Like Tesla is the electric version of Ford or Chevy or Dodge or Toyota or something like that. Tesla is not a car company. That is not the... Long-term vision of Tesla. The Tesla car is a thing that uses the one thing that Tesla's all about. Tesla's a battery company. And these gigafactories that Musk is building at multiple locations throughout the world, their job is to make batteries, not cars. And I don't think people understand the scale of these factories that he's building the scale is massive and there's a basic law of economics and it's economy of scale and it's not only a raw materials quotient it's the ability to manufacture and produce at scale when you start talking about enough batteries to hold 20% reserves of what your daily usage is in your home for 110 million owner-occupied structures in America The scale of that, forget cars, just in the house. It's, it's, it's something that is, is beyond the way we are, are conditioned to think. Because we think, oh, you want some? You just go buy them. And, well, yeah, but what if everybody does right now? So as more and more people adopt, you're getting that supply and demand tug. But as the supply side begins to grow, And all, you know, supply chains are breaking down. Like, the world's not ending, guys, okay? This is a, this is planned chaos. Right? This is, this is planned chaos for the intention of, you know, order from chaos. 
Right? You create chaos and then you propose the new order. That, and I don't want to get down in conspiracy weeds or anything, but it's a repeated pattern. You don't have to believe in any conspiracies to understand and see the repeated pattern that the people with control of society, when they want something to change, and it's not easy for them to change it, the, this, the easiest thing they can do to get what they want is create chaos and then create order from chaos. Right? That's real simple to understand. So those issues, one way or another, are going to get worked out. We're going to have to fight our own battles in this whole reset, if you want to call it that. But there's also things that are going to happen regardless of which side wins, if you want to put it that way. And cheap, available, high-quantity batteries is going to happen. And that leads to a society that can choose now what it does. It can run a centralized, distributed electrical grid which is what the people in power want, or it can become very decentralized very quickly, which is what most people would want if they can figure out how to do it. And it's going to be up to us to look at what's available and ask ourselves, self, how do I optimize this for the best needs of myself, my family, and my community? That's going to be all on us with the tools that are being created. But the tools are being created, and uh, I don't know, man, Musk... I'm not a fanboy again, and I know one person in particular in my life right now that literally hates him for totally different reasons that you wouldn't understand unless I went lengthy on the explanation just because. We'll leave it at that. Um, but in the end, the guy gets shit done, and he seems to be turning away from government heavily at this point. Um And people will say, well, he used government subsidies. And, all. and so would I. That's all I'll say to that, and we'll move on. Uh, and next up, we're going to talk about using dried chili peppers. Hey, Jeff Kitsuno with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. I wanted to answer a question I got the other day about using dried chili peppers. Now, a lot of people are familiar with fresh chili peppers, serranos, jalapenos, that sort of thing, and how to use those. But um, when you go into a Mexican market or most supermarkets these days and you see bags of dried chili peppers, that baffles a lot of people and they don't understand how to use them, what they're used for. All that kind of stuff. So just wanted to give a little primer and uh, help everyone get familiar with them. So some of the most common ones, um, the chipotle pepper uh, started its life as a dried and smoked jalapeno. Normally you'll find chipotle peppers in cans in what's called adobo. It's a oniony tomato uh, type sauce, and those are awesome. I do keep um, lots of canned Chipotle peppers, very smoky, very hot, and very useful. Another super popular one is called the ancho chili, and this is the one that's a very dark, wrinkled-looking pepper. Um, in its fresh form, it's the poblano pepper. That's what's used in Mexican restaurants to make chili relleno, which is a um, stuffed and deep-fried, battered and deep-fried um, chili pepper. Um, anchos are used commonly in mole sauce. Um, and there's not just chocolate mole sauce. There's pumpkin seed mole sauce. There's lots of different moles. But uh, ancho is very common. Another popular pepper is um, guajillo. That is used in salsas, soups, stews, as is the pasillo. A uh, pasilla, um, the arbol, A-R-B-O-L, arbol chili is a super hot dried chili. Um, usually finds its way into um, sauces and certainly salsas too. 
And there are many others. One of them that's really neat is called the Cascabel. And it's a round um, chili pepper. It's dried and it's the seeds in there shake. So you can kind of just shake it. It's like a little rattle. But the way to use these peppers in general, number one is you want to open them up. And if you're sensitive to hot peppers, you may want to wear gloves. Even though they're dried, you're still going to be touching the seeds and the ribs inside. And it can kind of burn your fingers and certainly your eyes and other parts of your body. So if you're sensitive, I recommend wearing gloves. But the first thing you'll want to do is um, you can use scissors too. Just cut the peppers in half or, or use a knife or even just rip them apart. And you want to get rid of as many seeds and um, the ribs inside as possible. Those can be very tannic and bitter. And if you don't remove them and you use liquid that I'm going to talk about in a minute that has that in there, it can make a very bitter product. So take out as many seeds and ribs as you can. So what I do is I usually just take my kitchen shears and I'll cut the peppers up into pieces and I'll just kind of tap them on the counter, get rid of the seeds. If there's any ribs in there, I pull those out. Now, the way I like to do it and um, I think works really well is to take a large uh, skillet, like a cast iron skillet, dry, no, no oil, nothing in there, and heat it to a medium high. Take your pieces of chili that are going to be dried and um, crackly and wrinkled, and you don't want them too dried. So dried um, chili peppers, the best ones, the freshest ones, are still going to be flexible, kind of like fruit leather, if you can imagine that. But you take those pieces and drop them down onto a hot, cast iron skillet and just move them around. You can even press them down onto the heat with, um, you know, a wooden spoon or a spatula that's heat proof, whatever. You just want to toss them around for a few seconds. If they start to smoke, get them out of there. And what's going to happen is they're going to soften up a bit. The oils in there kind of get released. And then you take them and put them in the bowl, put them in a bowl and cover with a uh, boiling liquid. Now you can use um, stock like chicken stock or beef stock or just plain old water. Cover them up and let them sit in that mixture for about 30 minutes. That's going to make them very pliable. And at that point, what I normally do is once they've cooled off, I will put the chilies and some or sometimes all the liquid, but sometimes I'll just reserve a little bit of it into a Vitamix. And at high speed, I'll make a very smooth puree. And from that point, the uh, options are endless on what you can do with that puree. Anything from making, you know, a red chili rice just by adding it to some rice, substitute some of the rice cooking liquid with some of that. Um, you can make sauces, you can make soups, stews, chili. Uh, one great thing that I love to do is I think I use ancho. So I'll take the ancho chili and just if you can imagine, it's got a fruity, like a dried raisin or plum flavor. And these are all different as well on the Scoville chart. So the Arbol, the one I mentioned, the little Arbol, that one can be pretty spicy. But some of these other ones like Ancho and Guajillo, they're not very spicy at all, but they do have a ton of flavor. But what I like to do um, to make a sauce for grilled chicken or even fish is I'll take heavy cream, put it into a skillet, over medium-high heat, never walk away from any kind of dairy in a pot or a skillet because it will want to boil over. And just with a whisk, just continue whisking it. And when it starts to thicken up, I like to season it with salt and pepper and then take some of that um, ancho puree, put that in there and mix that together. And once it's the right consistency, it makes a fabulous um, sauce to go over grilled chicken or even fish.
So I hope that gives you some ideas on what these peppers are and how to use them. And uh, just a little programming note, I did put um, an episode of the Harvest Eating Podcast uh, up, or it should be up when you listen to this and it's uh, on Chile, Colorado, which can either be beef or pork using these peppers. It's an amazing dish, and uh, you should check that out. Also, I wanted to plug the Food Storage Feast website. Um, until January 1st, we are running a special. Any uh, full-price purchase will get a second membership at no cost. So once you purchase, I will email a code to you, and that will give you um, – you can give it to a friend or family, and they can um, have membership for life to the website at no cost. And with that, I hope everybody has a great weekend, and take care. I will just say if you ever get some high-quality dried chili pods like anchos, et cetera, and you go through the process of making a base and make chili that way, it's going to be really hard to go back to using the, the pre-prepared chili powder uh, at least when you're like, I do that still when I'm making like a quick chili or something. Like if I'm going to make a grab a pound of beef and throw it in the crock pot and make chili for lunch. Yeah, I, I just use the pre-mixed stuff or sometimes I'll use some of my own chili powder that I've made from my own ground chilies. But when I'm making chili, you know, if I'm going to put some time into it, if it's going to be like a Sunday in the winter and we're going to have chili and uh, watch TV or, or have family over, then I always start with full uh, chili, uh, dry chilies toast them in the pan, do a lot of the stuff that, that Chef Keith was talking about, and uh, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Uh, next up, uh, we have a question on power tools. Of course, Tim Toolman Cook will talk about it, and it's about using a saw guide, but with a reciprocating saw instead of a circular saw that it's designed to be used with. And additionally, you're going to hear Tim mention Black Friday. That was a little while ago. So this one kind of fell through the cracks, and I found it. So I do have a link to the product. It's not on sale anymore. It's still very, very affordable, uh, available from Harbor Freight. But I'm going to also gonna talk to you in the end about this concept of I don't want to buy a circular saw. All right, here we go. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council. So let's dive right in. I'm not sure if this question will get up in time for the Black Friday sale or not, but where the, it's a Black Friday item mentioned, I thought I would get it back to Jack as quick as I could. So the question comes from John in Moore Park, and he wants to know, can a saw guide be used with a reciprocating saw? I already own a reciprocating saw, but not a circular saw. I rarely make longer cuts, cross-cutting plywood mostly, so I'm hesitant to spend the money to get a circular saw. Your thoughts? So what he sent me was a really cool clamping device that you can get at Harbor Freight on Black Friday for $14.99. Regular price is $19.99, and it is basically a long straight edge that's 50 inches long, and it fits over a sheet of plywood and then clamps down into place, which allows you to make long straight cuts with, in this case, normally a circular saw without the need of having a table saw. So... Can this be used with a reciprocating saw? Well, <laughs> the short answer is yes, but is it advisable? I mean, I quite often use my impact driver as a hammer, and it may not be the best solution. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Now, that being said, 
could you get a decent, you're going to get a better straight cut using this with a reciprocating saw than if you're going to just use a reciprocating saw freehand. So there is that, but let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was starting to get really tired of moving my great big cast iron table saw around. It just, every time I needed to use it, it was in the way and I rarely ever used it in my shop. So I found the idea of being able to get a really straight cut with a circular saw using either a level or a straight edge board and then clamping it down onto the material. You just measure for the depth of the blade from the inside to outside of the foot and then you just put it down there and go ahead and it works great. Now that I've seen this new product, I absolutely love it. I, I'm going to pick one up. Um, we don't have Harbor Freight up here, but I'm going to find something similar because this is a, a game changer way quicker than putting a level or a flat board down and then clamping it with two quick release clamps. So I think it's a great product. Now, will it really work with a reciprocating saw? Yes. I don't love reciprocating saws because they just want to jump around. They want to bite. I mean, you can get better blades, so that does help for sure. And this will give you a better cut with a reciprocating saw than it will, you know, with just freehanding it. But honestly, if it were my suggestion, I would probably look at an inexpensive circular saw. I mean, so if you're going to buy this for $15 that has one specific use, clamping onto the material for long straight cuts. Great. That's cool. Now, what if you looked at a really inexpensive electric circular saw? I took a look around on the internet and of course, Harbor Freight has a drill master brand. The reviews on it were surprisingly good for twice the price. So $29.99. Now regular price on the clamp was 20 bucks. This circular saw is 30, uh, but sale price on the clamp was 15. So, you know, spend an extra $15 and you now have a tool that you can use a lot more. Now, not that you're going to use it all the time, but to me, spending $30 on a tool that has multiple uses, you know, cross cuts, long cuts, quick cuts, whatever you want, um, is better than buying just that straight edge. And in the meantime, if you already have a four foot level or a four foot chunk of board with a nice straight cut, a straight edge on it, then use that with a couple of quick release clamps. And then you've got the best of both worlds for the time being. That's just my suggestion. You know, I'm a, I love to use things outside the box and I, you know, will this work with a reciprocating saw? Sure. It will. Do I think it's ideal? Not even close. If it were me, I would look at getting a very inexpensive uh, circular saw. Uh, Amazon also has a black and Decker. If you prefer a little better brand for $15 more, $45. So those are your two options. I'll, I'll throw all the links uh, to every product I talked about here uh, in the email to Jack. So hopefully he can share them with you guys. And yeah, I hope that helps, John. And if you want to follow up, if you end up picking up the product, let me know. Uh, I'd love to hear more about it. So that's it for me this week, guys. Uh, if you want to know uh, more about what I've been up to, I guess the most exciting thing recently is I just launched a second live stream every Thursday evening. And it is branded Repairedness, the art of looking after home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. And we're taking a deep dive into the systems of the home, you know, the skills you need, the supplies you need, and the service you need to do in order to look after your home, your bug-in location, whatever it happens to be, when you either can't or don't want to call for help. So if you guys want to check that out, drop by the YouTube channel on Thursday evenings, 9 Eastern, seven mountain time and guys thanks again and happy holidays if i don't uh, get back on here before as always stay happy stay healthy and have a great 
week. So Tim's kind of edging you toward you should probably get a circular saw or a skill saw, call it what you want to do. I'm going to come out and say it. Get a freaking circular saw. Don't try to save money this way. This does not make sense. Trying to use a tool that's not designed to do a thing to do a thing doesn't make sense. If, if, a, if a good circular saw was $1,000, I would understand your position. Okay, You can go to Harbor Freight and probably buy the cheapest plug-in circular saw you can get there for about $20 while you're getting your, your guide that's also about $20. Personally, I have kind of a minimum threshold on tools that I am willing to recommend and say if you're going to spend money, you should at least be a good steward of your own money and you should look for a good value-to-price ratio. Skill, S-K-I-L, makes a 15-amp, 7-and-a-quarter circular saw. They make a 13-amp one's a little cheaper. It's not enough cheaper to buy it. If you want to buy the 13-amp one, it's $42. If you want to buy the 15-amp one, it's a much better tool overall, not just because it draws more amps and it's got more power, but overall it's got a lot more going for it. It's $59. It's $59, and you will probably use it for the rest of your life, and it will probably never fail. It's not a cordless tool. When it comes to cordless tools, I have a lot of brand loyalty to DeWalt, but that's because I'm part of the installed base of DeWalt tool users, and I have their battery system as part of what I do, and I don't like going to alternatives, even good ones. Rigid makes good tools. Milwaukee makes good tools. Makita makes good tools. I have nothing against any of them. I just don't want to have two battery systems. So what keeps me loyal to DeWalt is that it's good. they're great tools, they stand behind their stuff, and I'm on the battery platform. When I go to a plug-in tool, I have no brand loyalty. I care about quality only. I own a really great cordless DeWalt circular saw, okay? And it's an old one. It uses the old battery system. I bought a generic adapter for it for 7 bucks, and I didn't feel a need to replace it. If I didn't have if I didn't have that by now I would have bought on the new platform the brushless version and it's a better tool and I'll probably do it someday if my old one ever dies. Okay? But I also have not one but two plug-in skill style saws, these circular saws. Two. One a really cheap one, it's older than dirt. I don't even remember where it came from. I think it was like somebody was moving like you want it. I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. And I have one that's basically the older version of the one I'm recommending today. And I've never felt the need to get rid of them, and they do so much, and it's, it's one of these tools that you will not appreciate how valuable it is in your home until you have one. When you have that last board that you need to rip eight feet out of, you do not want to do that with a freaking skill saw and a guide. You don't. A skill saw has... A, a plate, a bottom plate that it rests on when it's cutting stock. And you can set the depth because you don't want to be cutting three inches deep through a, a, a quarter-inch piece of plywood. You want to just barely cut through it. What a lot of people don't seem to realize, though, is that plate also can adjust on angles uh, to either side, and you can cut bevels with it. There is a ton you can do it. The one I'm recommending you consider even has a laser guide on it, so if you've, you're not using your guide and you're freehand cutting, which is what I usually do, and I'm, I'm going to get one of these things too. I'm with Tim. Those are awesome. 
But that way, that laser's laying on the mark that you, you put down, and it's real easy to stay straight on a long cut, either a long cut on some ply or paneling or something like that, or a long rip on, on board lumber. And a rip, of course, is the lengthwise, and a cut is across the grain. Um, I don't often tell people, no, you silly dummy, don't do that. Buy yourself the right tool for the right job. I'm all about adaptability and getting by. To me, the entry point, price point on this tool, if you have any need for it now, you will again, and you will not be like, damn, I shouldn't have bought that. I, I hate to be sound like I'm beating up on you a little bit or calling you cheap or anything. I'm just thinking this is not a good decision based on the economics. And if you said, Jack, I don't want to spend 60 bucks on one, it's too much, and you went down to like a pawn shop, I guarantee you, you can find one that works from some brand or whatever, it's a plug-in one for 20, 25 bucks. And I guarantee if you go to a pawn shop and they got one sitting there for $40 and you're like, dude, I'll give you 20 bucks for that. You might have to go to two, but somebody's going to say yes. And yeah, I, that's a tool I would buy used. They just, I've never killed one. I've never killed one. I know there's one laying in my grandfather's shop that's freaking, my dad, it's my dad's now, but it, it's got to be 60 years old. And I know it still works because I talked to my dad recently. So anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and, uh, and and take another one. We're going to have now a piece from uh, Derek Bonpietro on generators. Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got two generator questions, so let's just get into it. All right, first question from Joel. Can you combine two generators together with a parallel kit if the generators have a different watt output Example, a 2,000-watt generator and a 3,500-watt generator. Details, I just purchased the Champion 2,000-watt generator that Jack featured several weeks ago, and I've decided that I want to purchase another generator for more power. But I want to know if I need another 2,000-watt, or can I increase power even more by using a larger generator? Thanks, Joel. All right, so there's kind of an approved answer and an unapproved answer. If you were talking to any of these manufacturers, these products, so Joel basically talking about uh, like a suitcase-style inverter generator, and when we're going to answer this question, we're talking about only inverter generators, whether that's a suitcase or an open frame, which is now more common, or, you know, more of the boxy plastic ones where they're not so much a suitcase, but they're all concealed in a plastic enclosure. They're all inverter generator only. So from a manufacturer perspective, absolutely not. They're going to only recommend that you use the identical or that they use the parallel twin-sized generator. So, for example, Honda has the twin, which has the little parallel ports. Sportsman, I think they do the same thing. So a lot of the companion, quote-unquote, generators have ports in addition to just being the regular AC outlet. Um, but they're all going to recommend that they're the same exact size and identical, that they're, they're matching pairs. None of those manufacturers are going to really recommend that you go with a different brand or a different size twin because that's just not how they work. So the direct answer is really no. You really have to buy the parallel ready companion set, and then you need the parallel kit. So the parallel kit has a set of plugs, black and red, that go in there, and then they plug into the other one. You fire one generator up first, and then you fire up the second generator, and typically they're going to go into a box, the parallel box, which is going to give you some outlets, and usually one of those is going to be like, uh, some type of twist lock 30 amp, kind of like an RV style plug. So that gives you a little bit more power than the standard traditional outlet that you'd see in the wall of your home. Most of those situations are going to be for an RV. An RV 
is typically going to have like a 30 or 50 amp 120 volt plug. And so that's why most people get the parallel kits is to run like a larger rooftop air conditioner. Most people with a parallel kit, they're not going to do like a home standby situation because that's going to call for 240 volts. So you're going to have a four pronged twist, twist lock and, and there's no companion setup that's going to do that. So these are typically for like larger current devices and RVs. Now, here's kind of the secret, and if you do some Googling, you'll find plenty of videos and, and write-ups of people testing these, and it's, and it's working just fine. So an inverter generator uses a, uh, a generator that's asynchronous, which is basically revving up and down to match the load. That goes into a magic box, and inside of that, it's going to give you a perfect 120-volt sine wave coming out of it into the outlet plug that you plug your actual stuff into. If you actually look at the wiring diagrams for these companion generators that have those two extra ports, which you would plug your companion set cord set into, um, those really just run off of the, the little household outlet on the generator panel. So they're literally connected internally with the wiring. And what this is for is that in order to connect those two generators together, you would have what's called a suicide plug. That would basically be a plug that has two male prongs, one on each generator, because that's the only thing that's going to plug into the outlet. And in theory, if you had one plugged in and you touched the metal prong of the other one, you would get zapped. That's why they call it a suicide plug. So you have to have a safe way of electrically connecting these two, and they use these these adapter plugs, which are kind of like a barrel. So you can't physically touch the conductor, and that way it's, it's safer. But realistically, we're only connecting the two outlets on each generator together and then giving you one bigger outlet in the parallel kit. So in theory... If we can connect these two outlets together, you can get higher output. The other thing, too, is that we cannot connect both generators running at the same time. So the way this works is that you fire one generator up, its inverter assembly creates the 120-volt sine wave, and then when you plug the second generator into that and fire it up, it's already seeing the first generator's power production, and it's going to sync up and match that. If you had both running together and then took the plugs and plugged them in at the same time, you probably are going to let the smoke out of one or both of those because they're running out of sync and then boom, you're all of a sudden putting those together and you have a voltage potential if they're not matched up. So that's realistically what's happening. Now, the other situation too is if you want to go to a bigger generator, you get into some gray area and there's some people online that are doing it with success, but really I just have to give you the disclaimer, you're on your own. If you buy a 3,500 watt and you plug the two together and something bad happens, you know, you're doing something that's theoretically untested or unapproved so you know you're not going to get warranty support and really nobody's going to help you out so i would say if you want to combine two i would use two same sized units and preferably same brand because even though some people have success you might pick one that that might blow up if you connect them together so i'd probably stick with the same brand same size and if they're not parallel ready you might get into some of that funky suicide cord in order to make the two join together if you don't have those parallel ports and again, you're on your own. Is it unsafe? Sure. If you don't touch the metal prongs, you're not going to get zapped. So there's a bit of a disclaimer there. But in theory, they should work together just fine because those parallel ports are doing the same thing that the outlet port does. It's just safer to touch. All right, Joel, good luck with your companions. Second generator question up from Darren in Missouri. How many hours can I expect to get in the life of a generator? Is 80 hours a lot? I got a deal on a used Briggs & Stratton Storm Responder 6250 that already had 80 hours on it. it. appears to be in mint condition and started right up for me. Thanks, Darren. All right, Darren, that's a big ol' it depends. So 
portable generators, there's only a handful of things that'll keep these uh, from not lasting a long time. Uh, one is runtime. Plain and simple, most portable generator engines are not rated for continuous duty, you know, high workloads. Realistically, they're just not made to last forever. And sure, you can get something with like a Honda engine that's a little bit better quality, but the reality of the situation is that these things work hard for their applications. So don't think we're going to get thousands of hours out of one of these portable generators. All right, a couple of other items. Valve adjustment is probably one of the top ones that keeps a portable generator from running. So typically these are done at 100 or maybe even 50 hours of runtime. And once the first set is done, they usually last a little bit longer. So once the valves break in, they don't go out of adjustment as quickly. But this is one of the biggest offenders is that people run them for a couple of days, whether that is all continuous or whether that's over the course of a couple of years, who knows. But regardless, after you get 50 or 100 hours, those valves get tight, and then the engine will lose compression, and then it won't start up or it'll shut off after running for a bit once it gets hot. So valve adjustment is critical, and I would say if you got 80 hours of runtime, that would be a maintenance item that I would be checking. Now that's for pretty much all small engines, and mostly the smaller ones or lower quality ones where the valve lash doesn't stay where it's supposed to be over time because the valves wear out. So that's a big offender. The other big offender is the carburetor. So for that 80 hours, has that fuel been sitting in there for three years? I don't know. You know, you can have a brand new generator for a couple months and with some crap gas, guess what? You need a carburetor or you got to clean it out somehow. Uh, with 80 hours, if it was pretty fast, you know, it's got good quality fuel, might not be a problem. So that's the other big, big contender is, is the carburetor. So carburetor, valve adjustment, all that stuff. The, the last thing is really the voltage output. So as long as the engine runs fine, great. If the generator sits for a long time, the alternator can become demagnetized. And so if that's the case, you need to do what's called a field flash. And you can, I don't have enough time for this. You can look this up on your own, but we're basically exciting the alternator to create magnetism again. So that can happen. The best way to, the best way to really keep these things going is don't store fuel in it. Keep everything dry every couple months. Put some gas in it a little bit. Fire it up, put a load on it, let it run for a couple minutes, turn the load off, let the carb empty out by shutting the fuel valve, let the carburetor dry out, and then siphon the fuel back out of the tank. The other thing that'll keep the alternator in good condition is just not working at heart. So big air conditioning loads, any kind of big load, you don't want to just snap that thing on because we can pop the alternator or we can kill the voltage regulator. If it's a brushless unit, there's capacitors in there, those can pop as well. So those are more of a maintenance item. I would probably keep a set of caps or voltage regulator. You can look this up on your own for your particular model and get a spare. That's another thing that can happen is that they're not very robust. So if you, if you put a big load on, they could pop and that could be during a storm. So it wouldn't hurt to familiarize yourself with the part and how to change it out. It's not very difficult. All right, guys, hopes that answers your questions. Take care. All right, so uh, my segment for the Expert Council show today is going to be on censorship. And I'm also um, live streaming this for the folks that are on uh, YouTube and other platforms, which is kind of ironic, given the graphic that I've, I've put up right now. For those that can't see it, it is a uh, just a simple graphic of the Google logo, the Facebook logo, and the Twitter logo, or as I call them... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, gulag face fucking shitter um, and it says above it where they have burned books they will end in burning human beings this is a, a relatively famous quote though not so famous anymore because I don't think uh, people in power really want us to, to look at this quote and think about the significance of it 
this was made by Heinrich Hein in 1823 in a book. That book was later one of the many books that the Nazis burned in, uh, in 1933 during the famous book burnings. And, and, I, and I've, I've often asked people that seem like they're willing to um, condone any use of censorship by big tech, can you tell me a time in history where the people that burned the books were the good guys? And they don't ever have an answer for that other than, oh, it's not the same. It's not the same. Uh, to me, it is the same, and it's worse at the same time, and... We have more tools to fight back at the same time. Something can be worse, but yet you have more advantage in your response to it. And that's how I feel about this, right? And I don't remember I first heard this quote, but again, you know, where they burn books, they will eventually burn human beings. There's many ways that that's been laid out because it was not in English when originally printed, so it's been translated. But that's, that's the gist of it. That any regime... Any power that will suppress what authors have to say will end in literally burning authors, harming humans. And when you look at that today, I think that there's a lot of ways to, to see that. But I think what we have to start with on the concept of freedom of speech and being able to say what you want to say and actually be heard. So many people focus on Well, I have my right to say the things that I wish to say. Okay, fine. I agree 100%. But there's another party involved. There's another party involved in that. And that's the people who wish to hear what you want to say. And it would be very easy for these platforms to simply respond to people that complained about anything that anybody said with, you know, Don't subscribe to them, don't watch them, don't listen to them. Or if they said the things that we are saying are dangerous misinformation and they're scientifically untrue, well, let's have a debate. Let's have rigorous academic debate. They don't want that either. Instead, they choose the path of suppression. And there's a lot of ways this can harm humans. I think that Mr. Hine was very clear in what he meant, and I think that the Nazis showed that to be exactly the kind of thing that happens. Burning humans doesn't necessarily mean with fire, but the massive death that came out of that mentality, that if there was an idea you disliked, you just destroyed the idea versus countered the idea. And the idea that it's because it's misinformation is total bullshit. These platforms are full of crap. Do you know how much misinformation, and I'm not even talking about the establishment misinformation. I'm like blatant misinformation that creators put out that these platforms are fine with. How many videos can you find right here on Gulag's YouTube, or ScrewTube as I like to call it, claiming the earth is flat? There's thousands of them. There's like full-length, three-hour documentaries claiming this. One of you guys out there said, hey, I want you to look at this thing. Take a look at it. And it goes into the flat earth shit, too. But what it opened up with was pretty interesting. It was that, like there were massive die-offs, was the claim, in, in, in the early and mid-1800s in cities all around the world. And it presented evidence. And you know what the evidence was? 
Here's a picture of London. Here's a picture of Paris. Here's a, a picture. And then here's the population that was supposed to be in that city at the time. And the streets are eerily empty. This is and it's primitive photography. You couldn't do it with a flash cube. This is the middle of the day. It's Rome. It's London. You know, it's Prague. It's Moscow. It's Paris. Where are the people? And it kept showing these pictures and saying, and where are the people? Where are the people? The people were there. You just couldn't see them. You just couldn't see them. Do you know why you couldn't see them? Is anybody here enough of a photography bug to know why you couldn't see them? Because the way you took a picture back then is you set up your camera on a tripod, least it move a fraction of a millimeter and blur everything, and you uncovered it, and you did that for a very long exposure time, and people moving through the thing would not register on the film. These are some of the earliest foot, uh, photographs ever taken and recorded. They weren't capable of recording an image of something moving. That's why. Now, is it dangerous misinformation? No. Is it total freaking bullshit? Absolutely. Do I want, even though I think it's total bullshit, do I want ScrewTube and, and, and Facebook and Shitter to suppress that person's, I call it a mockumentary, right? It makes a mockery of documentaries. It's a mockumentary. No. I'm happy to have that information presented, and I'm happy, to, I, I'm happy maybe once to point out how it's misleading, and I'm happy to debate that. And there is a point where when something's so stupid and so ridiculous and so fails to meet the merits of fact that it can be ignored, but I'm either going to ignore it or I'm going to debate it, and maybe I'll learn something in the debate. Maybe the other side will learn something in the debate. Maybe we'll become more educated together. And when information, like this video probably will be, is censored and suppressed, that debate cannot happen. And when that debate cannot happen, not only am I denied my basic right to say what I want to say, more importantly, you are denied the right to hear it. You're, the, you're denied the right to examine my evidence as I present it. And I know there's a lot of people who say, well, Jack is a libertarian. Don't you believe that since Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these platforms are private corporations, that they have a right, just like you do, to decide what goes on their property or their platform? Yes and no. The reason it's, let's start off with the, with the yes. The yes is simple. I do believe if you own a thing and it's your thing and you clearly state the rules for people that use your thing and they break those rules and you want to kick them out, you can. I can, I can start a bar tomorrow and say anybody that comes in this bar, uh, can't wear a hat. You might think it's a stupid rule, don't come to my bar. Or you have to wear a hat. Or I might open a restaurant and say jacket and tie required. Right, and, and you can come or not come, and I think I fully have the right to do that. And I think, you know, at that macro level, does YouTube have a right to take this video down or any other of my videos down, which they've done? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. However, I think you have to state the rules clearly, and then when when you exercise those rules, especially when somebody like some of these creators who have built up followings of millions of people that legitimately help build your operation, and they have a financial asset that you can destroy with the flip of a switch. 
I think you owe them an explanation as to what they've done wrong. And you can't get an appeal through. You can't get an explanation. They won't debate you. They just decide they don't like you and they shut you off. And by the way, we'll talk about this tomorrow. But Facebook came out in court and admitted their fact checkers are not fact checkers. They, they literally said, it's our opinion. There's no fact checking. It's our opinion. And then you sully the reputation of these people by labeling quacks. And then you get a coordinated effort like, like the day of long knives, right? Where like you take 20 or 30 of your top alternative creators and Twitter and Facebook and Google conspire together, which is antitrust as shit, by the way, and deplatform them, platform them simultaneously. That under our own law, if we actually enforced our own law on the people that control everything, is criminal as shit. That's totally antitrust. That's totally not okay under U.S. law. And they just keep doing it. And to me, it is worse because we now live in this interconnected society where the vast majority of people, whether it's smart to do or not, get their information from Google, Facebook, and Twitter. That's where they get, even the stuff that comes out in different media and stuff, the way it gets aggregated to where it comes through and you can pick and choose what you want to see is through those. It doesn't have to be. And that's why even though I think this is worse, It's better in a way. It's better for us. It's not better that they're doing it. The reason it's, it's better for us is that we have the ability now to circumvent things. To circumvent things. Back at the time that books were burned, when, when someone wanted information, they had to go to a library or a newsstand or something like that and get the information. Today, the information is literally available at our fingertips. And to put out counter-information was extremely difficult, extremely ex expensive, and extremely risky. There was, I can't remember her name now, there was a girl that was very famously executed in Nazi Germany for being in college and handing out leaflets counter to the government's wishes and beliefs. And that person had to physically make that take that, have it in their possession, and go out and disseminate it in, in, in a threat of uh, certainly she would have expected to be in prison for this if not executed, and she chose to do it anyway. But it was difficult to do, even if you were willing to take the risk. Today, if you want to get information out, for instance, if YouTube takes this video down, do you think it's gone? Do you think it's destroyed? See, back when they burnt books, they only could burn the books they could get the copies of. Right? But we, got, we live in a world now with, with digital elements that we can make as many of them as we want. We can make as many of them as we want. In fact, there, it's an infinite thing. So some of you will probably download this video and then re-upload it to various alternative platforms. Some of them on things like blockchain. If, if YouTube leaves this up long enough, and they might leave it up, period. Who knows? Sometimes that's the thing, right? You can come out and say shit like this, and they delete you, and you come out and say like shit like this on a different day, and I guess the fact checker or whoever reviews it like might flag it, but it doesn't get taken down. You just don't know. There's no consistency. But if they leave it up just long enough so that it fully processes, then the, then the magic over at Odyssey is going to happen. It's going to go, and it's going to be on Odyssey on the blockchain, and then they can't take it down. 
we need to be using these alternative platforms. When you, especially when you see content from you know somebody that's not going to get mad, strip that shit down. If they don't have an Odyssey account, throw it up on Odyssey form. Right? I even know a couple people who have taken some big time creators and created like a mirror channel for them and started putting their stuff on it and keeping them like, it's over here, it's over here, you can have it whenever you want it, come claim it, I'll turn it over to you. I know people doing that. You know, you can you do that with 20 people? Probably not. You can do it with one. I, I know one person that did it for a, a creator I really like and, and eventually said, hey, you know, you have like, you have like $3,000 in, in, in LBC credits sitting on your channel. Are you sure you don't want this? And they're like, oh, wait a minute. Right? We have so many tools available to us today. You know, this is like, think about it like if you're a Star Trek nerd. If you strike me down, I will grow more powerful than you can possibly imagine. There's something interesting that happens when, when one of these platforms bans something. All of a sudden, people who never wanted to see it, want to see it. People don't like it when you take away their right to see a thing. When you take away their right to see a thing. So we need to use everything we have to make sure that they can't burn the books anymore. And you need to see this as what it is. It is a modern day book burning. That's what it is. It is the same thing. The idea is dangerous to the system of power and corruption. And therefore, it must be silenced. That's why it's the same. It doesn't matter that the medium has changed from, you know, printing press bound volumes to things people write or say, or put into visual presentations and disseminate. It doesn't matter that the way that the information is disseminated has changed. That doesn't have anything to do with calling it what it is, and it's a modern book burning, right? Because it's the same motivation. And it's clearly the case. If there's something that can be logically refuted... These platforms have no problem with the claim being false. They say it's dangerous misinformation. Just take the miss out, and you get it right. It's dangerous information, as in it is dangerous to those in power. And that's why they fear it. Because I'll ask you, when it comes to the whole COVID pandemic, have you seen two experts in a professional environment professionally debate at a high academic level various different treatment methodologies, the efficacy of vaccinations. Have you seen that, either one of those? Have you seen them debate at a rigorous academic level the way science is supposed to be? Have you seen a debate on best practices to mitigate the spread of the disease? No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And if their case was as strong as they claim it was, you would. If, if, if what they claim was as true as they say, they would welcome debate and the opportunity to use debate to make their case better. Just like you would. If you made a claim and you could back it up fully and wholly with credible information, the best thing in the world for you would be to be challenged by somebody with some level of credibility, saying that you're wrong. That would be wonderful. Then you would say, okay, 
you say, okay, let's have a debate about this. In this instance, though, we have somebody like Steve Kirsch. You need to look him up. K-I-R-C-H, I think is how he spells his last name. He writes on Medium or Substack. He writes on Substack. This guy's put together a foundation. He's got five million bucks in his foundation. He's offered a million dollars here, $200,000 there. In one case, he offered all $5 million dollars to encourage debate. Come debate me on this subject publicly. On, on all types of things to do with the COVID's pandemic. No one. No one. If you feel it's a conflict of interest, tell me what charity you want the money to go to. I'll put the money in escrow prior to the debate. As soon as you say you'll do it, no one. Zero. None. Because they're afraid. They're terrified. In my earlier segment in the podcast today, we had a, a segment from Ron Paul. And one of the, the, the pieces of that segment, the anchor part, from Chris Rossini, was how this is a great time for Champions of Liberty. And that is, again, why this is good. As bad as it is, this is good. The fact that you have the ability now to demonstrate to people that what you claim is happening is actually happening, to show them, look, this person put this information, oh, that can't be true. Oh, well, here it is. Well, you said they took it down. Well, they did, but here's 20 other places that it exists. Don't you want to know what you're not allowed to see? And nine out of ten people will go back to sleep. So what? Screw them. They have every right to sleep. You want to stay in the matrix, you can. But if one in ten, just take a look. And then the number of people who are awake to this reality grows, that's the reason they suppress it in the first place. That's the reason they suppress it in the first place. They're not worried about the nine out of ten who will willingly stay asleep. They're worried about the one that will wake up out of that group. Because then you move them over, and then there's more, and there's more voices, and then you go and you repeat the process. The 9 out of 10 stayed asleep, right? They're now 10 out of 10. But the next time the process repeats, another one wakes up. And, and they're terrified of this. They're terrified of this. And that is the entire point. Keep banning us, idiots. Go ahead. Shadow ban us. Shadow ban us. You know, um, outright ban us. Deplatform us. Do whatever you want. Every time you do it, you only prove that you fear that which we have to say and that you do not have the logics, the logic or the facts or the capability to generate enough rhetoric to sufficiently argue the, the thing that's being brought up. You're weak. You're weak. These corporations are worth tens of millions of of dollars, and they're afraid of a redneck, hippie, duck farmer. So they'll cut out his tongue because they fear what he has to say. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up there. I appreciate everybody. All right, guys, and we have wrapped up another edition of the Survival Podcast. Let me remind you, if you like our show and the work that we do, you can help us out by just doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, I've got an interesting item for you today, and it's it, it's interesting because, one, it's a really cool thing. I use it. I've been using it for years, and every time I bring it up, somebody thinks we're all going to die if we use it the way that I use it, and it's, it's, it's craziness. And it also has some confusion in it because of name confusion. Um, this product is the Nesco Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker. It's the Carry Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker, uh, and it's the Shard Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker. 
Shard and Carry are really the same company. They, the, it's two brands that merged a very long time ago, and they had some brand identity issues. And then Nesco acquired the Shard Carry brand. So you can find this product sometimes. The label on it is Carry. Uh, sometimes the label on it is Nesco. Sometimes the label on it is Shard. Sometimes the label on it says Shard Carry. I think it's probably about moldings and supply issues and, and things like that and what's available at the moment. Uh, trying to keep it available, but it is available right now, and it's on sale. Uh, this thing retails now for about 160 bucks. It's on sale today for like 110 bucks or 120 bucks. I'm going to check the price real quick. Uh, 106 dollars and 66 cents. That's 66 cents. Might scare some people away. It shouldn't. Um, but this is a electric pressure cooker and canner. And I do not care what an article from the American Canning Association from 11 years ago, which is like seven years before this thing was even released, says about electric pressure canners, it is wrong. An electric pressure canner it just means that you're putting electricity straight into the device that's creating the heat instead of setting the device on top of a stove and getting the heat from there. This is inherently safe if you follow good canning practices which means that if you're canning something like meat, you should follow the advice on how long to can the meat and, and handle your jars and everything the same way. I'm not going to say any more about that. I can't do this anymore. I really can't have this conversation with people anymore. I know I just talked about censorship and all, and what did I say my two options were? To explain my side or to ignore you? I am past explaining. I've done this enough. I am done. Read the comments if you want to. Um, but this thing's great, and it's great as a canner. It's also great as a pressure cooker. Uh, my grandson and I just took a chicken apart, and we took the core, and we made bone broth, and then we took some parts from the chicken, and we made a great chicken soup, like kind of a Mexican-style chicken soup, and he learned how to do that. I love – I probably use it more for making bone stock than I do for canning. I do some canning with it. I love to can. This thing made me love to can again. You can do four quarts per batch. That's plenty. I did a whole show on using this type of canning in your life and in your preps. But if you've been wanting one of these, or you know somebody that has, they're on sale for $106 bucks today. And again, don't let the whole brand thing bother you. Carry, Shard, Nesco, they're all the same. They're all the same, and they're all safe. If this wasn't safe to do, I would be dead by now, and thousands of people in this audience would be dead. Right? This is... This is Again, this is based on all of the, the pushback on this. One more time. It's from an article by the American Canning Association, something that sounds like that. It's an 11-year-old article. The product was only released like five years ago. You, you see the problem with citing that as your source there. Anyway, check this thing out. No matter what you're going to buy, remember you can get it uh, through tspaz.com, and no matter what you pick, if you start there, you help us out. And this item is in stock and will arrive before Christmas. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with the song of the day. Uh, I forgot last week that I said we're going to have Christmas music this week, so I didn't yesterday, but I do today. It's one of my favorite Christmas songs of all time. And it's like not a Christmas carol Christmas song. This is uh, by Alabama. This was released all the way back in the 80s, and it's called Christmas in Dixie. And, and I'll tell you what I love about this song. First of all, you know, Randy Owen with vocals in Alabama, just any of this kind of music at this tempo and speed, like he's just made to do music like this. The sound is wonderful. But it's the whole snowing in the pines line. Now, I didn't grow up in Dixie, 
I guess partially I did. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida uh, for the first part of my childhood and the second part of my childhood in Pennsylvania. Didn't get a lot of snow in Jacksonville. Certainly didn't have snow in the pines in Jacksonville. It just really wasn't a thing. We did in Pennsylvania, though. And again, it wasn't Dixie. But that, to me, is one of the most perfect moments. And I don't over-romanticize snow. My wife gets all excited when it's going to snow. I just see it's going to be a mess, and it's going to be a lot more work for me, and things freeze up, and then my life is harder, right? I I, I do. That's that's what I kind of see a lot of the winter storms we get down here in Texas. And usually it's more ice than snow. But the early snows, the first snows of the year, the ones that don't stick around forever, the ones that don't mess everything up, they're pretty beautiful. And as a person that grew up hunting, and especially when it's a, a wet snow, not a frozen snow, not a crunchy snow, a light coating of snow in the pines where you can see better because the snow's lit up and the smell of those pine trees is those, those boughs are weighed down with the snow. And being able to be in there, it's almost like being inside an organism, being inside the forest as an organism. And sometimes you're sneaking through and you're hunting and you're, you're having that experience and sometimes you've hunted for a while You're tired. You've really got to the point you don't care today whether or not you come home with a deer or whatever. And sometimes just sitting in there is one of the most peaceful things that there is. And when I hear this song, I'm transported back to when I was a kid up on Pine Hill Mountain in the pines, in the snow. I hope it takes you somewhere as well. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
It's a peaceful Christmas time Christmas and Dixie It's snowing in the pines Merry Christmas from Dixie To everyone tonight And from Fort Payne, 